Amen. You can have a seat. Today we continue in this series, Real Life, and we've been using a sort of a beginning point that we want life to mean something. We want to be able to look back on our lives near the end and say, okay, what I did counted for something. I built into people. I made a difference. The people I am have been impacted by me in a way that that helps them live a better life. And we've talked about the fact that if we want life to mean something, we've got to begin with Jesus. But I think we take that and go in a direction that really is an assumption that maybe is not a good one. We sort of feel like if we're doing that, we're making a bargain with God, and that if we make that bargain and I follow God and I sacrifice for God, I live His way, then God is going to make my life easier. We feel like He should, right? I mean, if I'm doing what God wants me to do, my life should be easier, but... The problem is we live a little life and we find out that's not necessarily the case. In fact, life can be really hard even when we're following God. And if we look back, we find that's true even in the Bible. Look at the book of Acts and what we find is the people who were following Jesus Christ, living as his disciples, didn't have it easy. In fact, there were times when because they were followers of Jesus Christ, their lives were really hard. So it doesn't mean just by following Jesus, my life's going to be easy. It might be meaningful and it might be the best life that God can give me, but it doesn't mean it's going to be easy or that I'm necessarily going to be happy. Today we continue in the series and we're, we're hearing what John has to say. And we're hearing that he's telling this story of Jesus. And I want us to learn from that story. And we're sort of flying high above the story, dropping down in places and hearing what Jesus has to say and the way he's interacting with people. And one of the things that he deals with is this question of how life can sometimes be difficult. And what we find is that when life is hard, sometimes we look for someone to blame, don't we? I mean, we look around and say, well, you know, the reason I'm going through this hard time is because of this person and what they've done and how they've made life difficult for me. It's easy to blame people. In fact, sometimes what we do is we look inside and say, well, you know what, maybe the reason I'm having such a tough time is because I've done something wrong and God is punishing me. And the truth is, sin does have consequences, both now and for eternity, but it doesn't always mean that because life is difficult at the moment, God's punishing me for something. We look for ways to blame people because it can explain the difficult times of life, but we need to think about whether it's a good assumption to make that someone is always to blame. And in fact, Jesus dealt with just this question in John chapter 9. And we're going to get there in just a minute. We're actually going to skip around a little bit. But if you'd like to get your Bible open to John chapter 9, that'd be great. And we'll look at several verses right there. But before we do, I want us to sort of set up a couple of patterns that we see at work in the Gospel of John that carry through really through the whole book. And they both involve the number seven. Now, when I introduce these, you might think, well, that's just sort of special knowledge that only certain people who study the Bible have. But that's not true. They're they're pretty available, and in fact, I think the people who read John's Gospel really sort of right after it was written would have noticed this because it's the way they thought, okay? So they both involved the number seven. Seven was an important number in the ancient world. It was a number that represented completeness, 
Like for the Jews, they knew God had created in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. And so they thought about seven being completeness. We see it work throughout the Bible. And in fact, if they, if they saw something happen six times, it'd be like, okay, waiting for the shoe to drop. Where is number seven, right? Because that would be complete. And what we find is, in the Gospel of John, seven times Jesus says, I am the, and then you fill in the blank, okay? I'm the bread of life, Jesus says. I'm the good shepherd. We're going to talk about that one later. Over and over, Jesus says this, and each time he's telling us something important about who he is, about his identity. So when Jesus says, I am the, we've got to listen up. And John's going to give seven of those because seven again represents completeness. Now we note in the Old Testament, the name of God, Yahweh, what did it mean? It meant I am. So when Jesus says, I am the way, he's saying, I am, I am God. And this is something you need to know about God. Now we're going to see that at work. But we're also going to see another set of seven things that happened. Seven events. They are seven signs that we find in the Gospel of John, seven miracles that Jesus performs. And each of these, again, tells us something about the very nature of Jesus and who he was. Now, this is the way that they go. It it isn't that Jesus says, here's the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth, but it is introduced. The first of those signs we find in John chapter 2, when Jesus turns water to wine at a wedding in Canaan. I know for some of you, this is your, like your favorite miracle, right? Because it involves water to wine. You're all for that. So the, the wine was running short. Jesus provides wine after it's all over. This is what John says. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay? Now, a couple of important things there. John begins that counting process right there, right? The first of the signs. Now, he doesn't number the rest of them off, but it's as if he's pointing and saying, okay, start counting here. This is number one. And he also notes that this points to the glory of God. Jesus is doing these signs for a reason. And in John chapter 20, we've talked about that he writes so that we would know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. That's what these signs are all about. So that his disciples would believe. Okay? So that was the first one. If you look at the list, this is the way it goes. Okay? First one is water to wine. That's John chapter 2. The second one is the healing of the official son. You can look up all these stories. That's John chapter 4. The healing of the man with a disability, okay, not able to walk, John chapter 5. Then number 4, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with almost no food. Just a little bit of food. 5,000 people are fed. That's John chapter 6. Same chapter again, John chapter 6. Jesus is walking on water. Now, if you look down that list... What ancient people would have noticed, and I think we can sort of see this as well, they increase in magnitude, right? I mean, they get more and more amazing as we go through this. The first one is water to wine. That's impressive. I can't do it, but it affected only a small group of people, right? And it's relatively minor. Save some people some embarrassment. Then suddenly Jesus is healing people. Then he does a miracle that affects 5,000 people at one time. I mean, he transforms a little bit of food into a lot of food. And then, number five, Jesus is 
walking on water, okay, and help someone else to do the same. Now we come to the sixth sign. It happens in John chapter 9. John chapter 9 begins pretty basically. John basically says Jesus is walking along and he encounters a man who was born blind. Now this would have been pretty common. Because in the ancient world, if you're blind, you can't support yourself, right? And if you got family that takes care of you, that's awesome. If you don't, you just got to ask people for money to survive. And that's what this man was doing. So you'd walk into a town. A lot of times at the city gate, you would find people maybe who can't walk, maybe who are blind, and they're just asking for help. That's what Jesus encounters. Here's this man. He's born blind. It's not that he lost his sight. He's never seen anything. And this is what happens. Verse 2. Jesus' disciples, not the religious leaders we're always talking about, but Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Now, they're making an assumption Maybe one that seems a little foreign to us, right? I mean, if we see a person who's blind and they've never seen anything, we don't say, okay, what's wrong with you? Was it you who did wrong or was it your parents? But it's an assumption that they had in the ancient world. That if there was something wrong with you, it was because you did something wrong and God was punishing you, okay? And so they're, they're wondering, not Jesus did somebody do wrong, but Jesus Who did wrong? Was it because his parents did something wrong? Maybe they had sex before they got married, and so God punished them. They struck their son blind. Or maybe God knew what kind of scoundrel this guy was going to be before he was even born, and so he punished him preemptively. Well, that seems a little strange. It's not how we think, but it is how they thought. And you know, I think the reason is because when we see suffering, our own or someone else's, we look for an explanation. We want to know why it happened because that helps us get a little peace in our own heads. We we want to know why did this happen? And if it's because someone's to blame because somebody did wrong, then we understand it. And it's also true if we can identify who did wrong and what they did, then we feel like we can protect ourselves a little bit, right? Like if if we know the reason this happened is because this person did this thing that was wrong, if I avoid that, maybe I can avoid the suffering as well. Here's what Jesus said to that that kind of thinking. Verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says, if it's your assumption that every time you see suffering, whether it's in someone else's life or in your own, that you assume that someone did something wrong, you look for someone to blame, that is misguided. That is not good thinking. Now, Jesus is not saying there's never consequences for sin. That's not the point. His point is, don't assume that just because there is suffering, someone should be blamed for this. Don't go down that path. We do it a lot. I mean, just look at our pandemic, right? 
When you look around, there's suffering around the world. People have died. People have lost loved ones. People have been very sick. We're tired of wearing masks. We're tired of all the inconvenience. Tired of having to reserve our space at church. All that stuff. And it's easy for us to start trying to find someone to blame. I've seen posts about this and all kinds of things. It's because we don't have prayer in school. It's because people are sending it. What I've noticed is that most of the time when we try to find someone to blame for this stuff, it's someone else's sin. Right? It's not the sins I'm doing, it's the sins that other people are doing. We don't say, man, there's a global pandemic because there's so much gossip. I mean, people are really gossiping, and I think it's because God is judging us for that. It's because of what we might call bigger sins, worse sins, things that we somehow think affect God in a different way than the stuff we do. We look for someone to blame. And Jesus says, don't. In fact, he says, because this man is blind, God's going to do something amazing. And you're going to see a picture of God that you've never seen because of this guy. Now, that sort of surprises us. We don't expect it. But the truth is, sometimes when there is suffering... God can work in amazing ways and do something that surprises us. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way. The chaos and misery of this present world is, it seems, the raw material out of which the loving, wise, and just God is making his new creation. So sometimes God looks at this world that, man, there is a lot of suffering around. And what God sees it is, the building blocks of being able to recreate, to bring in his kingdom, to do something big. God can take the really dark things and transform them into something else entirely. Now I mentioned, as we walk through the Gospel of John, when John talks about day and night and when he talks about light and dark, we listen up because he does that all the way through the gospel, and when he does, he's telling us something important. And that is true in this passage as well. Verse 4, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus is foretelling. He's saying right now, it's, it's good, I'm with you, but there's coming a time when it's going to be dark. He's talking about when he's in the grave. Verse 5, While I am in the world... I am the light of the world. Now, in this passage, what we find is those seven I am statements and the seven signs intersect in a really important way. And so Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Just as God of the Old Testament is the I am, I am telling you, I am the light of the world. Jesus embodies light. And so when our world seems really, really dark, when it seems like we are surrounded by darkness, it is Jesus that can dispel that darkness. And in this moment, when they encounter this man born blind who has lived literally in darkness his whole life, Jesus is saying this is an opportunity for light to dispel the darkness. For Jesus to embody all that is good and make something powerfully good 
out of something that seems powerfully bad. It reminds us of what we read all the way back at the beginning of John, when John describes Jesus as the Word at the, at the first chapter. And we read through this, right at the verse 4, he says this, In Him, Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus telling us here that he is the light, John has told us that at the very beginning of the gospel. And you see, there was coming a time, and it wouldn't be long from, from this moment, when Jesus would be on a cross, and he would die there, and he would be buried. And from that Friday afternoon until Sunday morning, it must have seemed to Jesus' disciples that things were about as dark as they could be. It might have seemed like it was all over, that something had gone terribly wrong, that maybe they had done something wrong and caused this, that Jesus had somehow missed the mark and he was dead because of that. But John reminds us at the beginning of the story, Jesus was light. And the darkness could not overcome the light. Jesus is the light of the world. And as much as we might look around our world and feel like it is filled with darkness, that darkness cannot overcome Jesus. You read through this story. Now, I don't have time to go through the whole thing, but read John chapter 9. In fact, keep reading John. We're not going to cover every story, but, but look through this story because there's so much more. Jesus makes mud with spittle and he puts it on the man's eyes, tells him to go wash in the pool. He does that and he can see. For the first time in his life, he can see. It's an amazing sign, sign number six, okay? We can very rarely give sight to people who've never seen in our world with all of our medical advances. Jesus did it in the first century miraculously. Read through that story and, and find that the religious leaders are like, ah, we don't like this. We don't like Jesus anyway, but now he's giving sight to the blind. People are going to follow. And so they start questioning everyone. They question the man. And then the people around him, they're like, is this the guy? And they're, I don't remember. Were they not paying attention to him because he's on the side of the road? Possible. Was he different because of his encounter with Jesus and suddenly can see? Possible. They talk to his parents. Is this your son, the one who couldn't see and now he can see? And they see the threat and they're like, eh, it's not our business. Talk to him. And then they go back to the man. And they say, what about what about this guy? He must be a sinner. Anybody who could give sight to the blind must be in league with the devil or something. And he says this in verse 25, John chapter 9. Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I can see. I love the way he says that. I don't know everything about this guy, Jesus. I don't know all his thoughts and his actions. I don't know everything he said, but I can tell you this. I've never seen anything in my life. And after encountering him, I can see. And that changed everything. 
Now he's at an encounter with the light. And what that teaches me is that our struggle, our suffering, the difficult times in our life, our struggle is an opportunity for God to work. And what we want to do is find somebody to blame. And what we need to do instead of looking for someone to blame, whether it's someone else or ourselves, when we have struggle, is to open ourselves up for God to be at work. That's what happened to this man. And you might say, okay, my struggle is an opportunity for God to work. What, what does that mean? Does that mean if I get sick, God's just going to heal me from that sickness if I pray to Him? Well, you know what? He might. That does happen, right? I mean, there are even people we know who have been told, here's the diagnosis, it's grim, we don't think it's going to last very long, and they've prayed, and we've prayed, and maybe they're still alive. It does happen. But that's not always the way God works. Sometimes God dispels the darkness in other ways. And when we're struggling because we've lost someone that we love, or we're struggling because a relationship has ended, what we find is God is still at work, dispelling the darkness through the light, which is Jesus. It reminds me of what we read over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when Paul's looking forward to resurrection. And he says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, about those who've gone on, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Paul says, I don't want you to grieve like the rest of the world. I don't want you to understand the darkness of death in the same way that the world does, because even our struggle with death is an opportunity for God to be at work because he gives life. You know, this is sign number six. And for those people who were reading God's, uh, John's gospel, they would be waiting for number seven. And what is greater than giving sight to the blind? We'll talk about that two weeks from now. But for us today, what part of your life is dark? What's the darkest part? Where do you need light? Jesus, the one who says, I am the light of the world, is ready to dispel that darkness. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for this story that reminds us of your power to overcome the darkest things that are present in our lives. And we pray that you will, that you'll do just that. That you'll help us to see light when we never have before. God, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship.